This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. All right, this week we have a very special guest. I'm really excited uh, about this, although I'm always really excited about our, our, all of our guests. Uh, Yale University professor Robert Schiller, winner of the Nobel Prize in 2013 for economics. He is really a fascinating and delightful guy. I'm a huge fan of his work. I've been following his writings about markets, about bubbles, about investor behavior for really a long time. You know, early in my career, I became very interested in investor behavior and the cognitive errors that people in general, but specifically when we're making risk-reward decisions and making bets on on markets or bonds or stocks or what have you, those specific errors are quite fascinating. And when I began exploring that area, not a lot of people were doing serious academic research and, and writing about it. And, and Bob Schiller was really one of the first academics to say, hey, the math doesn't add up. Markets may be sort of, kind of, a little efficient, but the numbers aren't there to justify this belief that markets are perfectly efficient. In fact, when you see the day-to-day and week-to-week swings looked at against dividends, which are really the ultimate payout of, of future earnings, the numbers just completely destroy the argument that that people are rational, markets are efficient, etc. So he's really a, a fascinating guy, uh, not what you would expect from an academic uh, really down to earth. I've been on a number of of panels and and media uh, appearances with him, and I just always find him to be charming and and pleasant. I've given him numerous opportunities to throw people under the bus, and he refuses to rise to the bait each and every time. Uh, if you're familiar with his track record, or if you're unfamiliar with his track record, he's the guy who published the book Irrational Exuberance early in 2000, pretty much marked the very top of the market, as if that wasn't enough. In 2005, 2006, he warned that housing was wildly overvalued and was due for a significant correction. Oh, and by the way, we should expect that correction to have a real negative impact across uh, the economy. He was dead right about that. And today, he sees markets not as quite in bubble territory like 99-2000 or as, as bubblicious as we saw housing was in 2005-2006, but he thinks markets are fairly valued and that they could have a couple of years to go before we start to run into real um, serious problems. So really interesting guy, fascinating curriculum vitae, and still, you know, he really just wants to be a professor. He he teaches a class every day. He's been uh, up in New Haven at Yale for many years. Really sharp guy, very fascinating discussion. Uh, without further ado on my part, here's our conversation with Bob Schiller. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Today, I have a very special guest, our second Nobel laureate, uh, Yale professor Robert Schiller. If you don't know who Professor Schiller is, well, first, shame on you, you should. And second, let me give you just a a brief background uh, on the professor. You've been teaching economics at Yale for- 32 years. 32, quite a while. You've written a number of books. One of the most famous books was called Irrational Exuberance, which came out in the year 2000, in which you had warned about the coming dot-com implosion. Mm -hmm. That wasn't the first time you had warned people that things were going to be a problem. In 2006, you were describing the subprime problem Mm -hmm. and what it was going to do for housing and said, hey, we're looking at something we haven't seen in many, many decades, a big drop in housing prices. And lo and behold, I think nationally, we saw a 33% drop. You're the co-creator of the Case-Shiller Housing Index, with which also measures house prices in both cities and metropolitan regions. And, and basically, you were the first to really quantify changes in home prices nationally 
and internationally. And then last year, for all the work you've done on behavioral economics and finance, you were the recipient of the Nobel Prize, which you actually shared with someone else from Yale or MIT? No, the other two were both from Chicago. Chicago, okay. Eugene Fama and Lars Peter Hansen. And and we'll save the whole wonky argument about Fama versus Schiller mm-hmm. in terms of are markets efficient or not for a later segment, but Professor Schiller, well, welcome to the show. My pleasure. So- let, let's get into the, the background of this. You found your way into a field which has become known as behavioral economics or behavioral finance before anyone even knew there was such a thing. How did, how did that come about? <laughs> well, I never know. It's uh, partly because, actually, there are antecedents. I had a professor at Michigan, George Katona. Mm-hmm. He was the guy who created the Michigan Consumer Sentiment Indexes, which are Still widely cited. And and when did he create that? That was quite a while Nin- ago. Oh, yeah. He did his first sentiment index in the 1950s. So uh, that was an early exposure on your side to consumer sentiment. But nobody had ever taken that and really directly applied it to Yeah, he was in the economics. psych department. Right. And he was uh, all by himself. Yeah, I don't know who. Well, there must have been someone else. But. but no one else was really saying, hey, let's look at the psychology of consumers to see how what they're feeling and, and saying affects their behavior in terms of spending and retail sales. Well, there weren't academics, or there weren't scientifically... There must have been people talking about psychology. Sure. They've always talked about it. But the idea of systematized... You know, it was in the early 60s that the crisp tape came, so you could use a computer, and uh-huh. you could process uh, an analysis of stock prices. And that kind of dominated thought from 1960 to almost 1990. They were finding that markets looked efficient. Mm-hmm. That was the general tenor. So the whole idea that you could beat the market, at least among academic types, was considered discredited. And uh, so they weren't interested in psychology. There was no psychology in this frame of thinking in the markets. And yet when you look at the behavior of markets in actuality – You have giant booms, you have bubbles, you have terrible busts and crashes. Uh, You know, in 1987, the Dow lost 23% in one day. Mm. How efficient is a market that on one day it's worth 100 and then the next day it's worth 77? And both of those prices are actually valid according to that sort of approach. How does that make any sense? Well, you're referring to October 19th, 1987, Yes. Uh, when, as you say, the market made a historic one-day drop. And uh, well, efficient markets people would say there must have been news. <laughs> that, that The problem is no one could come up with what the news was, and so it started to sound phony. Uh, I, I did a study of that event, uh, but my way of studying it was totally out of fashion. I did a questionnaire survey. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, most... No one else did that until later. Uh, there was this Brady Commission that did a survey. Uh, but, you know, economists have gotten into the frame of mind that there's no point in asking people why they bought or sold. Because uh, they lie. They make up stories. Yeah, well, they, they rationalize. They lie to themselves. Yeah. See, they don't I, know they're lying. This looks like psychology, which is just disreputable in the econ department. I, I found that whenever you talk to people who are bullish— the question to always ask is, so what's your investment posture? Oh, I'm fully invested. I'm long. I own lots yeah. of equities. And whenever you talk to people who are bearish, it's always, oh, I'm out of stocks. I, I, I yeah. don't want to have any exposure. It seems that the way we define ourselves is rationalizing oh, yeah. the prior decision. Right. right. That's called cognitive dissonance. Or, that, that's right. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, so we end up with participants in markets who don't really seem to know why they're doing what they're doing, but they're constantly rationalizing uh, that process to themselves. Right. Well, they, they, these all ring bells that psychologists have explored. So justification bias, which is something that uh, Kahneman and others have studied. Mm-hmm. People uh, will feel they have to justify things. 
their, their self-respect, even when they're justifying to themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and so they tend to follow uh, naive rules, or, uh, uh, and they tend to do the same thing that they've done before, as you were saying. Today, my special guest in the studio is Yale professor uh, of economics, Robert Schiller, winner last year of the uh, Rivsking Award oh, for- Riksbank. Riksbank Award. It's, it's technically not a Nobel for economics, but it comes well, from the same- Well, they call it that. Right. They, they don't make up their mind what to call it. So they have it, all these different names that they use at the Nobel Foundation. So we could just call it the Nobel Prize in economics. And, yeah. And that's, that's good enough shorthand. So- the segment, this segment, what I really want to discuss with you are the booms and busts that it seems every market has gone through. We had the dot-com boom and bust. We had the housing boom and bust. Lately, gold seems to be in the midst of imploding. Uh, as we're speaking, it's in the 1100s. It was $1,900 mm-hmm. not too long ago. It's lost about 40% of its value. Is this the fate of humanity that there are always going to be booms and busts that we're always going to have bubbles? Uh, good point. I, uh, let me say in my Nobel lecture, which I gave on that occasion, I tried to point out that efficient markets is actually, the theory actually has some value. Mm-hmm. It's a half-truth. So let's not go to extreme. Right? Maybe it would be more fun if we went to extremes, but... Price movements in markets often do reflect real news. Mm-hmm. The point is that sometimes they don't. And so it's not uh, the pure efficient markets theory is not quite right. So when we look back <clears throat> at this past decade, we've had we had a dot we've had it seems every few years we've had a major bubble. Why is it that human beings succumb to this sort of activity in capital markets? Well, people succumb to this sort of thing outside of capital markets, too. <laughs> it's called fashions and fads. Mm-hmm. Henry Fielding said, fashion is the great governor of this world. It's true. We're, we're you know, so much like the way we're dressed and the, the things we I'm eat. I'm in khakis it, all and a blazer. <clears throat> You're I'm in doing, a suit and tie. Yeah, I look uh, very conventional here, right? Mm-hmm. It's all dictated by gray society. Flannel, gray flannel <laughs> overcoat. Right. And this is the sort of stuff. So because... So in other words, it's the crowd. It's because peer pressure. Everybody else dresses right. this way. So is that how be- investors behave? Yeah. No, there's no problem in doing what everyone else does in dress. doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. But if you do what everyone else does in investing, you'll just have the market return. If you're lucky. Some of the studies <laughs> yeah. we've seen have yeah. said that uh, the average investor isn't even ge- – forget alpha – they're not even generating beta. They're not even obtaining market returns. So right. how, how significant is investor behavior to those sorts of bad returns? Well, then people are vulnerable to sales tactics. Mm-hmm. And they might buy into some uh, investment fund that has a very high management fee. Uh, Which is a drag they were on sold. returns. They were sure. sold on it. And they fall victim to tricks like incubator funds that, Mm-hmm. You know, you try to start a number of funds, and one of them is going to do well by chance, and you start promoting that one. There was an old joke many years ago that you could send out, the back in the day when newsletter writers were popular, you send out 10,000 pieces of mail, and you pick a stock, and one piece of mail says, this stock is the greatest thing in sliced bread, it's our next pick, you have to own it, and the other 5,000 pieces of mail say, this is a terrible stock. Yeah. You want nothing to do with it. And then whichever half is right, that's how you market the next right, the next right. letter to. And people are like, well, they were so right the last time. So <laughs> it, it's very easy for us to be fooled. I'm speaking with Yale professor Robert Schiller discussing booms and busts. Let's talk a little bit about irrational exuberance, a phrase that was made famous in 1996 by Alan Greenspan – which I think many of our listeners will be familiar with Greenspan's irrational exuberance right. speech. What I bet most people don't know is that you're the guy who briefed him mm-hmm. before that speech, and that was essentially your phrase that he incorporated into his um, his speech. Is that is that more or less accurate? Well, I know that I, I met with the whole Federal Reserve Board 
mm-hmm. with my uh, co-author, John Campbell, uh, three days before that speech. And we were saying the market was irrational, but uh, I don't think I probably used the word irrational exuberance. So that was his uh, own phrase. Well, it wasn't exactly his own. It was already around, but not used. Mm-hmm. But you know what really made it famous was not the fact that he used it. It was that markets all over the world dropped sharply. As soon as he, I, I believe the Japanese markets were open uh-huh. when he gave his speech. The U.S. markets were closed. Clo- right. They just dropped immediately. And people thought, what's going on here? Why would the Japanese market, well, you know, people in Japan were listening to his speech and they must have put it out on the news. And that was the basis of the, the fall in the Nikkei. Yeah, it, it was so absurd that he just uttered these words, irrational. And he mentioned Japan in the same sentence, oh, by the way. And, and it, now everybody forgets, back in the late 90s, Greenspan was the man. He was moving markets. Right. Since then, we've had a little bit of reputational damage thanks to the most recent financial crisis. Today, my guest in the studio is Professor Robert Schiller of Yale, winner of the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2013. And earlier, we were discussing housing. Let's have a a little more detailed conversation about that. So you were the co-creator of the Case-Shiller Housing Index. Prior to that, there really wasn't a reliable set of national data that compiles all the different metropolitan and regional housing markets. Is that is that correct? We had, well, it's interesting. There were no price indexes at all until around the 1960s. Strange, because people had the Dow and sure. there, there was none. Then the National Association of Realtors, I think they had a different name then, uh, created the median home price and they published it. It was kind of intermittent. Some months they'd miss and it was very jumpy. Mm-hmm. Then the, I don't know if you wanted all this. There sure. was a new home price index that was census published. Right. But it didn't track existing homes. It wasn't, you know what, what we, Case and I developed, we wanted this is to Professor trade Case at, at Wellesley College. Mm-hmm. We wanted a tradable index. We believed in markets for mm-hmm. indexes. So we wanted an index that represented the investment value of a existing, so it's a repeat sales index, like a stock market index. Mm-hmm. It, it shows the changes in the index reflect changes in prices of homes not the change in the mix of homes that are sold. Right. So every year, the NAR, every month, the NAR data, that's a different set of houses sold right, each and every month. Right. You guys try to focus on a region and make it look more like you're trading a given house, yeah. a given group of houses? So we were the first to publish a uh, home price index that is like a stock price index. And, and that's been around for how long now? Since the late... 80s. And it was eventually sold to S&P? Uh, uh, it's complicated. Ago? We sold it to Pfizer. Pfizer sold it to CoreLogic. CoreLogic has a deal with S&P. Got it's it. Com- you know the way the world works sure. today. Never, never simple. So then in 2003, you had an interesting paper at, I think it was Brookings. Is that right? Is there a bubble brewing in the housing market? Right. So tell us a little bit about that. What did you see in 2003? long before anybody else was talking about um, housing bubbles, what caught your eye that made you author a paper three years before the market peaked and said, hey, this is a potential problem? Well, one thing is we did a questionnaire survey of home buyers and asked them what they thought home prices would do for the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. And we got extravagantly high expectations People thought uh, uh, something like 10% a year increase Forever, in home prices. For 10 years. For 10 years. So the houses will double every seven or so <laughs> That's years. That's right. And- After already reaching record high levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we, we asked about, you know, general, uh, people thought housing was the great investment. They, they they were a little annoyed with the stock market in 2003 because it had bottomed out. Sure, you just they, had a bubble burst in, in the So they, they would write things on the questionnaires. They'd write... I am really angry with my broker. He's, he told me, all these finance guys are a bunch of crooks. I want to buy a house, something that I can see and believe. I know it's real. I'm sitting in it. I can watch it all the time. And that just became an attitude that drove. And then home prices got increased uh, at record pace. The, the price to rent ratio went up. The price to personal income ratio right. went up to record levels. 
Uh, Price so, to GDP, home home valuation yeah. to GDP. Uh, All three metrics had just gone three standard deviations away from the historical. Right. They went completely vertical. And one of the studies that you had written, and I don't remember if it was the O3 study, said that over 100 years, here's something that people are always astonished when I tell them this. How much of a return has a home generated net of inflation over the past century? What what yeah. are the numbers? Well, like? this is what I published in 2005 in the second edition of Irrational Exuberance. In real terms, from 1890 to 1990, there was almost no change in real home prices. So in other words, after once you back out inflation, home prices were flat for a century. Right. For a century, and, yes. For a century. <laughs> now, that does that include the taxes, real estate taxes you pay, no. the maintenance. So effectively, all of us who have big houses that we pay a lot of maintenance yeah. and costs for, this is a money loser. Unless you like the house, yeah. If you you got to live somewhere. It, yeah. For a lot of people, it's a form of forced savings because they have to pay their mortgage down each month. And if they are not right. irrational when it comes to home equity loans- 30 years later, they have a house and they have no obligation on it. That's another thing that was happening during the bubble. They were, these home equity loans were proliferating. That's right. So Be that people were borrowing against houses. They'd buy a second house, a lot, some of them. You, using the first houses <laughs> yeah. as collateral. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Our guest today is the great Robert Schiller of Yale University, winner of the 2013 Prize in Economics, creator of the case Schiller- uh, index, creator of the CAPE measure, which we'll get into, and relentless um, popper of bubbles. You've been pretty <laughs> good identifying when markets are in a bubble. You did it in 2000 with the dot-coms. You did it in 06 with housing. What do we see as a bubble today? What, what's got you- I have to come up with another one. Well, I don't know. The stock market looks- Highly priced. The bond market looks highly priced. Mm -hmm. The housing market is going up. Uh, these are good times for booms. Of so sort. this is a boom, <clears throat> and I, but the I, question is when will it end? And I wish I were better at doing that. I, you know, I I don't get the sense that you perceive the market now. I think we will we'll agree stocks are at least fully valued, if not pricey. Yeah. Bonds are pretty fully valued, if not pricey. I don't know if houses, I would they're say. They're not highly priced. But not, that's where I was going. They're so, going. They have been going. Well, maybe not in the last few months. But I don't sense the same sort of warning from you today in 2014 yeah. that I heard from you in 2006 about well, housing or 2000 about stocks. This feels like 1996. <laughs> so we still have, yeah. the, we know that these cycles always end badly. We know there's always yeah. a bear market down the road. But it seems like you're saying this could run a few more years. Yeah. So we're not at the level where, oh my God, this is crazy. It's really, hey, things are a little, uh, a little pricey. That doesn't mean they can't get even more pricey. I really wish I could. I keep trying to predict turning points. Uh huh. And I've been doing questionnaire surveys. You can find them on our website. I give mm -hmm. these away. The problem is that it just can't make any sense out of them. Uh, I'm I'll, I'm peeping to try. Maybe I'll have. A, I'll share when yeah. we're done. I'll share. It makes with you. some sense out of them. We we figured out the secret. I'll share it with you later. It's a quantitative <laughs> trick. I don't want to say it over the radio, but I'll okay. I'll I'll you, that'll be the next uh, the next Nobel. It's a simple moving average, and that's usually the <laughs> okay. warning sign. Um. So let's talk a little bit about since we mentioned the Nobel. Let's talk about you and Professor Fama. He's yeah. at you're at Yale. He's at Chicago. Right. I always thought that. You guys had two very different philosophies, and I thought your philosophy complemented his. So let me just set this up in a nutshell. Eugene Fama essentially says markets are, if not perfectly efficient, then very efficient. That pri And what that means in English is prices reflect all the available knowledge that's out there. And so don't even try to beat the market it's almost right. impossible. You're better off just buying a passive index and, and forgetting about it. And Fama famously inspired John Bogle, who went on to form Vanguard, which is now managing $3 trillion, of which $2 trillion is in all passive indexes. So 
as an academic, uh, my experience has been most academics don't necessarily disagree with that as an investment strategy. Is that a fair statement? You know, uh, well, broad I mean, passive it's indexes. Of, yeah, it's a question of degree. If you're talking to someone who is not really likely to be that interested or attentive to what he or she is doing, of course you don't tell them to try to beat the market. It's a, it's a game that smart people compete on. And so you're not going to win. It's like don't go into the gambling casino and play poker with your life savings either. You're going to lose. So, uh, But I think the, the, the other question is whether some people who try hard and who are smart and mm -hmm. organized, whether they can beat the market. And I think the answer is yes, although maybe not as dramatically as you hoped, but yes. They're and, very and, rare. The Warren Buffetts of the right. world and the Jim and he's Simons. He's even dramatic. Right. Yeah. The, the guys who have, have put up market beating. The, now, some of the efficient market people say, well, that's just random. But right, I, don't, yeah. I don't get the sense you agree with that. No, I think that uh, people who try hard, who have business sense, and, you know, it's work. I don't yes. think uh, it, it's not necessarily fun. I think, you know, lots of uh, it's not intrinsically rewarding unless you have a certain urge to do that sort of mm -hmm. thing. Some people love it, you know, so maybe that's great for them. Most of us would rather do something else. It, it, right, <clears throat> it, as opposed to being handcuffed to a, a, a terminal and watching the market. Yeah. Tick by tick, day by day, there are people who have demonstrated an ability to outperform the market doing that. But you're right; it's a lot of work. It's it's and then they, and then they can the last twenty years of their life might be a failure, mm -hmm. even though because you know it's not just people; it's their theories and their ideas. Right, and the the market can just work against some theory that was right. For a long and it will be right time. again, but maybe not for the rest of your life. <laughs> so these things come into and out of fashion, as as you said earlier. That's the problem. So, you know, I'm, I'm a professor, not a, a professional investor. I, mm -hmm. Somehow going into that field seemed a little bit, uh, it, it would give me ulcers if I went into that as my full-time job. Well, you have, to, you have to learn to accept that you can't control what the market's going to do. Yeah. And as soon as you accept the market goes up and down and I can't control it, the ulcers go away. Some people never get to that phase yeah. of, yeah. hey, listen, sometimes it rains. I just have to remember to bring an umbrella. And not blame yourself. That that's exactly that's exactly right. I'm speaking with Robert Schiller of Yale University. So let's get back to the efficient market hypothesis. So on the one hand, Fama is this efficient market guy. On the other hand, he's at the what's now known as the Booth School. And at the time, uh, there is an anomaly that these small cap stocks and these value stocks seem to do better than the rest of the market, which is a little funny because no one's supposed to be able to outperform the market, but yet he becomes an advisor to a company that tries to beat the market on a regular basis. They don't use the word beat the market. So what, uh, what phrase do they well, use? I don't know if I have it exactly, but it's something about identifying risk factors. Okay. So there's a value risk factor. So in other words, you're getting a greater reward for the capital you put at risk is is that right and that, that there might be a rational reason why one would need to be compensated it might correlate with something you're doing or uh, there more might risk be, more there volatility. might be some tail risk that you have in mind that you don't see in the data but it's important risk so these are kind of hypotheticals mm -hmm. and he so he wants to uh, he has faith in the rationality of the market that, and he that wants to say that you can't prove why these fluctuate, why value stocks. I, I shouldn't say that I can say exactly what he would say, but it has that quality to so, it. And, and your approach is different. Your approach is, hey, humans aren't especially rational. And in a crowd, they are occasionally very irrational. Right. And hence, these humans, and by crowd, it could be a stock market. It could be any sort of market for goods and services, and that's how prices go so wildly out of whack. Yeah. I, now, I think Fama is a brilliant man, actually. Mm -hmm. I admire him. But, you know, brilliance comes with uh, slants or views as well, and that's, uh -huh. that's all that we're... You know, when it comes down to... I talk to him about facts. We kind of agree on the facts. Mm -hmm. 
on the you know objective statistics of the market. So, uh, so you view somewhat the market. forecastable. Uh-huh. But, you know, as Famer would say, the fact that it's somewhat forecastable doesn't mean it's inefficient. His uh, Nobel lecture was called Two Pillars of uh, Financial Modeling. The one pillar is market efficiency, the basic notion. Mm-hmm. But the other pillar is you have to say, well, what should an efficient market look like? And it could be a little bit forecastable. Mm-hmm. So, So the two of you share a... Nobel Prize with a third person who's a statistician at, at Chicago and yeah. doesn't philosophically, he's really more about the mechanics of, of crunching numbers, whereas you and Fama are philosophically very much, I don't want to say polar opposites, but you look at the market very, very differently. Well, I believe in broader social science. I believe in psychology, mm-hmm. sociology, political science, they all matter. When you wonder why is the market going up and down, you have to think in terms of those broader disciplines. The, uh, there's a tendency for economists to dismiss these people, and I think that's a big mistake. So early in your career, 1981, you had a uh, paper you published, Do Stock Prices Move Too Much to Justify Subsequent Changes in Dividends? So explain how you looked at dividends as a way to decide that, hey, this market isn't really all that efficient after all. Well, people often forget that ultimately the value in stocks comes from the dividends they pay. If there were ever a company that the government said, we're putting a special tax on you, we're going to tax 100% your dividends forever, right? the company, the stock would be worthless because its only value comes from the dividends. What about companies like Amazon that have no dividend but, but they go will up in the and up? future? So that's the expectation: is you're buying a pricey stock now that one day is going to have a big dividend. That's right. So that's the lure. This is the podcast portion of our interview. By now, you've heard the first uh, hour of the radio interview, which goes by. I told you it goes by like that, right? It's <laughs> it, it's so quick. Um, so I have you in the studio for a little while longer before we have to take you to your next. Um, presentation. I know you're honoring a colleague from Columbia. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a handful of things we didn't get to I definitely wanted to talk about. First, before I forget, you now have an online economics course. What what is that called? Financial markets. Yeah. And, And how can somebody access this? Well, first of all, it's free, unless you want a certificate. You can pay for the certificate. But it's a free course Mm -hmm. on Coursera. And oh, sure. It started a couple of weeks ago, and it's running until December 15. You can sign up anytime uh, for free, and you can uh, participate. And then we have— uh, Now, Coursera is a group joint venture of a couple of different schools, or it's a— Coursera is a company mm-hmm. uh, that uh, involves a number of universities offering some Yale, of their Yale, MIT, Stanford, Harvard. There's a, a whole list of, of right. really highly regarded schools— yeah, there's a lot of courses that you can take for free. For free. It's 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 a very so, nice thing. So, so it's uh, like going to Yale, taking a course with Bob Schiller, but without paying $50,000 a year tuition. <laughs> yes. And, the and, only thing is you sh- you don't really uh, see me directly. You see me on the TV. There's, there's I think, close to 40,000 students in my class right. Right, who signed up, and maybe so the, they're not showing up. And, and we know that the online courses, there's a big drop-off when, when over the course of time, right. but- you know, so they don't get to go to the front of the class and ask you questions when so, the lecture's over. But this is the same sort of lecture you give. Yeah, it's the same. Last uh, time I did this, uh, I had, I we graduated eight thousand with the final exam. We gave mm-hmm. them a certificate, and we failed three hundred and fifty. I'm sorry, I feel bad about that, but you have to take a final exam. It's it's essay or multiple choice. It's multiple choice. Okay. <laughs> Well, it's computer graded. Uh, I'm not grading. Um, I figured as all much. You know, so you're not going to do eight thousand essays for free, and then. But so, I have office hours. Uh, students can send in questions. We just had one the other day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and how similar is this course to you know a Yale Economics 101 course? Well, it's a little bit shorter. We trimmed it down, but mm-hmm. it's it's ba- it's based on actual lectures I gave to my class. So this is if someone were to say. 
gee, I didn't get into Yale, but I'd like to take Bob Schiller's economics course. <laughs> yeah. This is actually something they could do, and it's no charge. I think this is a revolution for the future. I don't know where uh, colleges are going as this becomes more and more. Khan Academy uh, has And they been... even meet each other. Mm -hmm. Our students, uh, they, they, they can, have meetups? They can blog each other. They have meetups. Uh-huh. Uh, so... so Khan Academy is something that started doing this to teach math. Yeah. And now they've added dozens of subjects. You think that this is something that is a... A change in society. This is a technological. Well, it's a question that, that we we have to wait and see. I I actually like to have real people in a classroom. Sure. And I think people want to get to know their professor, which uh, you really can't do, uh, or I can't get to know them when there's so many of them. For sure, not not when there's eight thousand signups. Yeah. Um, that's an interesting technology. What what other technologies? I'm a gadget head. I know you yeah. have a smartphone. What other technologies uh, impress you or interest you or do you think might be leading to societal changes? Oh, well, th there are big changes coming. Uh, I don't, uh, we were talking about the diet yeah. pill earlier. The problem is, are we, and lots of people have written about this, uh, uh, are, are we arriving at a new society where there aren't jobs for most people? You know, it used to be you could get a PhD, and if you couldn't get a job, you could drive a taxi. Right. But it's coming. We're going to have driverless taxis before long. Not not too far and away. You, to be a taxi driver, you, you used to have to know something. You have to know your way around the city. Now they just plug in GPS. and uh, So it, we're going to eliminate the driver completely. And the question is, where is this going? Young people today have, say, 50 or more years ahead of, of uh, earning years what what are they going to look like? What are their jobs going to look like in fifty years? It, it's uh, frightening. So, what about something that's less frightening? Earlier, we were talking about uh, a diet pill that you go to mm -hmm. the Midwest in America, even you go to Europe now, which used to make fun of us fat Americans. Europeans are now giant and bloated. What what did you mention? You thought was oh, happening yeah. on that side? I I was thinking that. I don't know. I'm not a drug expert, but I'm think I wouldn't be at all surprised if in ten years they'll have a diet pill that not only works, but they'll tell you it will improve your longevity if you take it. <laughs> they'll so, say it's good for you. You better take it, and there won't be fat people anymore. So you think technologies and and biotechnologies eventually going to eradicate well, a, a lot of It's just a matter of controlling appetite. There is this leptin mm -hmm. hormone they discovered, and they thought that was it, but it turned out not to work. But we'll, we'll find That's something That's the else. famine mode. We, we were talking about that earlier, yeah. that you could suppress that, but then your body starts to think you're in. there's no food, you're in yeah. famine mode, and it right. tries to hoard calories and not lose them. So it's a matter of eventually figuring out the biochemistry. It's just this will be a bigger revolution than the birth control pill. <laughs> really? So now so the gonna... same thing there. They tell women take it because it'll make it, it actually reduces your risks. That's really interesting. So the technology. So here's what we're going to have. We're going to have people living longer, but making less money. Who's gonna Who's gonna pay for this? You, you got me. I See, that's the it. economic side, <laughs> and so we have no uh, answer to this. Well, the only answer that I've been giving in my books is that we should think about the computer-generated inequality that might come in the future, mm -hmm. and let's make plans now how we're going to deal with it. Don't wait until it happens. And so the plans could take various forms. One of them is risk management. Mm -hmm. We could put people in risk management contract. It would be an insurance variety. Mm -hmm. Another one is a plan to raise taxes on the rich. Mm -hmm. I mean, not to. I, I'm not saying to make everyone equal, just to respond to the in, exceptionally increased inequality if it happens. Mm -hmm. If it happens. Now, by a lot of measures, inequality in America today is at the widest levels since the 1920s. Um, do you think that if we continue to see things move along the path that they they are, and if technology continues and globalization and other factors continue to make getting a job more challenging, is that going to get better or is that going to get worse? Well, nobody knows. It could get better. It could be that it generates jobs. 
so, uh, for example, the people talk about musicians. They they say the invention of communications technology created a, a winner take all effect that mm-hmm. only the only the very best singers would who could make records uh, or CDs would would survive. But it seems to be going in another direction. That now the the communications technology allows so many different types of music to flourish that it's kind of creating more jobs for music. And then people will hear someone on the on, and then they want to hire the person for their wedding or something like that. It, it used so, to be that musicians would tour in order to promote the sale of their album. Now the way the cost structures have changed, they release an album in order to go out to promote the tour. The the way the record companies <laughs> yeah. set up their contracts, these guys, unless they're selling a million copies, they're not making a lot of money. But when they go on tour, if they run it lean yeah. and smart, that's where they're making money today. So you're saying we don't the internet the and everything else is, is, is changing that. We really don't know the future. That's the scary thing. And and since we don't, this you know, we're talking finance here. Finance and insurance mm-hmm. are really about an uncertain future. It's about managing it, sharing your risks, hedging your risks. People forget that, that that's a core element. It's not about beating the market necessarily. It's mm-hmm. about managing risks in such a way that you we can be a productive society and we can achieve our goals. Now, that sounds eminently reasonable, and yet we seem to overlook it. So I'm going to repeat what you just said. <laughs> The future is unknowable. There are risks inherent to that. It's our responsibility to manage those risks, and how successfully we manage those risks will determine how successful we are financially. Is is that a fair restatement? That's how, right. How this come- is what this is one of the messages of my financial markets course. There's an important technology that finance represents, mm-hmm. and it's a technology of financing activities and doing it in such a way that people can undertake activities that would have been too risky for them they can they can take you know you you venture capitalists will support a young firm whose probability of succeeding might be 20% uh but it it's not going to be devastating because they'll spread that risk out over many investors so you you make 30 or 40 investments into and 20% of them are winners yeah. The the big winners pay for all those losers, and that's a, a, a form of risk management. And that's what our civilization is built on. We're doing really? amazing things. Uh, so we have cures for diseases, pharmaceuticals. People who try to develop new drugs have a notorious failure record, mm-hmm. but a few of them end up being you know, worth billions. The Lipitors and Viagras of the day, those are billion-dollar <laughs> yeah. pills. And in other words, to get to those, they had to be willing to go through dozens and dozens of failures trying to solve a particular right. problem they couldn't in order to get those blockbuster so winners. Advanced, financially advanced countries are producing these drugs mm-hmm. that save millions of lives. They're not coming from back, I should say backward countries, emerging countries that don't have a sophisticated uh, way of promoting enterprise. Now, the count, the argument people would say is... Professor Schiller, the, these emerging markets, they don't have the wealth that right, Europe right. or the United States has. How can they be expected to develop these sort of things? Fortunately, you're, you're saying it's not a function of wealth. It's a, for, for, it's a function of intelligent right. risk management. And fortunately, these emerging countries are moving along. That is the story of our age. They're coming up. So fast. it's China, it's India, right. it's the whole Pacific Rim. It's places in South America and Turkey. And yet, you know, uh, the news lately, when you avoid the horrible headlines about Ebola and ISIS, whenever I read about India, which, you know, you look at China as a huge success story, although there are stories now about it's also become an economic bubble, but India hasn't had that problem. India seems to be having a hard time Forget the 21st century. They have a hard time with parts of the 20th century. Half the country does not have indoor plumbing. I think that's the actual number. 50% of households don't have toilets and indoor plumbing. Their health care system is, or I should say their public health system, 
is uh, there are people dump garbage and effluence in the river and in places where people right. bathe and, and wash yeah. it. How can in a modern and, and yet technologically, they're a very advanced country with lots and lots of software companies and lots and lots of technology companies outsourced. How do we have such a bifurcated society in an emerging market that should really be doing so well? Well, they do have a couple hundred million people living like in advanced country uh, quality of life. And it it's is the growing. other billion that seem to be yeah, lagging. Yeah, I know. Well, th this might be the story of our time. The world is developing into uh, two divisions, the cosmopolitans. The mm -hmm. people who are running com high-tech companies in India are very cosmopolitan people. You'll see them here in New York. They travel around. They know the world. It's the locals who I worry about, people who don't uh, develop this kind of sense of the world, and uh, they may stay behind for a long time. Yeah. I'm hoping, though, that this will develop better so that India will, will uh, sh these things will be, the, the modern technology, financial technology will, will be shared more broadly. F find its way from the haves to the have-nots in, in countries like that. You know, we see nations like Vietnam and for, forget South Korea. South Korea is now a booming yeah. first world nation uh, comparable to Japan or m developed uh, Western Europe. What about some of the other Pacific Rim countries? We, we, we see Vietnam was at one point in time a fairly agricultural, fairly agrarian society. They seem to be coming, along with a lot of other countries along that Pacific Rim, um, technological powerhouses, manufacturing powerhouses. Yeah. Is that the path out uh, of, of poverty for these nations, or is that just over, oversimplifying it? Well, I don't think all of them can do the same thing. And we may be saturating the world with some kinds of products. Uh, it's this. There's a whole field called development economics mm -hmm. that uh, studies. Uh, I'm thinking of. Uh, uh, there's a wonderful book by Danny Roderick uh, called mm -hmm. uh, "One Many Recipes, One Economics." It's a book about development economics that I recommend. And what he says is that every country is different. And they all face different problems. So you need a development economist to go in like a doctor and to try to diagnose the problems. It's not a simple thing to know. Often these problems are uh, created by a culture that is resistant to modern ideas. And it can be very hard to dislodge that. So this is as much sociological and psychological as it is economics. Yeah, I wish these these different departments would cooperate more. <laughs> so let's let's bring this back to the U.S. and let's talk a little bit about um, stocks and valuations. The one thing we haven't talked about was a, a measure you created called the CAPE, the cyclically adjusted P/E ratio. Mm -hmm. Describe for listeners exactly what that is. I developed this in the 1980s with my former student John Campbell. Mm -hmm. The idea is very simple, that price-earnings ratio has been used for 100 years or more to uh, judge the valuation of a company. Earnings is what it makes. You want to know uh, how many years' earnings uh, do I have to pay to buy a share of this? Uh, but we, we thought that the uh, price-earnings ratio, is, as it's commonly calculated, is is a little bit inaccurate because earnings are so volatile from year to year. Mm -hmm. So we thought, let's just average the earnings over more years. We, so you're taking 10 years instead of a single quarter yeah. or a single year. Turns out we weren't the first people to think of that. After we, we show that that helps predict re subsequent returns uh, quite a bit. So in other words, when you're looking out at future 10-year returns, when the CAPE ratio is high, you get worse returns. When right, the CAPE right. ratio is low... So in other words, trailing 10-year returns, when they're low, when you're coming off of a period of either earnings are high relative to price or price are low relative to earnings, looking for... So essentially, you're saying valuation matters. Is that, that That's the takeaway of the CAPE ratio. 
Right. Now, we use this on indexes or sector indexes or uh, not so far. We haven't used it on individual stocks because I think the 10 years might, for a lot of stocks, it might not even be 10 years of right. earnings history. So, But for indexes, uh, you know, like looking at the United States, uh, who can forecast earnings anyway beyond saying, well, they'll be similar to what they are now. So if the price is high relative to what it's been doing for the last 10 years, then maybe it's not such a great time to be in the market. You know, McKinsey did a fascinating study on analysts' forecasts of earnings. And it turns out that over the past 25 years, the consensus estimates of forward earnings by the analyst community has consistently been about 12% a year. But earnings growth has consistently been about 6% a year. So they've been twice as optimistic as they should be, the only exceptions being in the midst of bear markets, they've been twice as bearish as they should have been. They've been much more negative. So forecasting earnings doesn't seem to be what Wall Street does especially. I'm hoping they're getting better, by the way, from all these experiences. You would have thought that 2000 would have taught them a certain lesson. And to be fair, when we look at the NASDAQ today, the NASDAQ is over 4,000. The P ratio is so much lower than it was back in 2000 when when markets had gone crazy from from October 1999 to March 2000, that six-month period, um, the NASDAQ doubled. It went from 2,500 yeah. to 5,000 and then proceeded to collapse down to 1,100. And uh, the P ratio was over 100. It was something crazy. And I believe the S&P 500 peaked, I'm doing this from memory, uh, somewhere in the mid-30s? No, 40s. The 40s. Well, with our CAPE ratio, yeah. The CAPE ratio was in the 40s in 2000 on the S&P 500. And let me remind people, the S&P 500 hit 1,500 right around the peak and did not get over 1,500 until 13 years later. So the forward forecast of the CAPE was low and the net returns were 0% a year for 13 years. So is that how investors, because here's the argument that's been circulating on Wall Street about CAPE. You know, CAPE has been saying markets have been overvalued 90% of the time for the past 20 years. But that's not really how you envision using the CAPE. It hasn't done that well overall for the last 15 years anyway. Well, but the markets themselves haven't done all that well over the last 15. You know, from the peak in 2000 to last year, effectively flat with lots of booms and busts in the middle. So really the way investors should use CAPE is a forward expectations. Here's what you should expect your returns to be for the next 10 years, either above average or below average based on whether the CAPE is elevated or or not. So how pricey is CAPE today? Around 25, 26? Yeah, in that range. So that's pretty, that's not extreme, but it's still significantly, it should be in the 15, 16 range. Is that about right? right. But even, even at 26, the uh, if you look at what it suggests mm-hmm. for returns, returns are still in real terms, three or 4% predicted for the next 10 years. After inflation. Based on historical, you know, it's not a really solid prediction. You never know. But right. um, if you compare that with the returns you see on bonds, Mm-hmm. That's real. So it it looks a lot better. This, of course, it's riskier. But I think that at this point of time, it is reasonable to have a substantial fraction of your portfolio in stocks, even though they look pricey. Well, bond market is pricey too. So 60-40 <clears throat> stock bond portfolio that gets rebalanced on a regular basis is something that you wouldn't object to. Yeah, I don't want to be responsible if it crashes, though. <laughs> well, but we know what happens. If stocks crash, everybody rotates into treasuries, so bonds do better. Yeah. That's the whole idea. It's expensive. You know, people forget, and, and this is right up your alley in terms of crowd behavior. In the midst of the crisis in 08-09, so many funds had poured into U.S. treasuries that the yield had gone negative. It was below zero. Here, yeah. I'm giving you $100, promise to pay me back 99 in a few years. <laughs> yeah, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, so much for, for uh, rational exuberance. On the fixed income side, hey, I don't want to own stocks at any price. I'm willing to buy bonds and right. only lose a little instead of taking right. a risk in, in stocks. So uh, 
a portfolio that that is pick a number 70 30 60 40 that seems to make sense over the long haul even with elevated cape ratios where where they are and and to depends re- on your situation though how much True. risk you can take and people who are living in retirement maybe that's too much stocks 60 yeah. 40 so uh, yeah you have to Talk to your advisor. There, <laughs> I can't. There is no perfect proof. portfolio for every. Let, so let's yeah. caveat this. This we're talking very generally. We're not talking. Obviously, someone who's eighty years old and living on a fixed income is going to have a very different portfolio than someone who's twenty and has right. a fifty-year window till they retire, or someone who's especially risk-averse or especially risk-embracing. Those are two. Com- all that stuff has to be personalized. There is no right. magic formula for for everybody. So I want to go back to what you said earlier that you know stocks are fully priced, but we're not in two thousand territory. You said this feels sort of like nineteen ninety six or so. Is is that's just a guess? Yeah. Right. I mean, I'm not. We're not <clears throat> quoting you as saying Bob Schiller says the market has four more years to run. You're saying we still haven't hit that crazy bubble level. Yeah. See, and I I think of political and sociological factors matter. For example, we just elected a Republican Congress. Mm-hmm. Now, we could have reacted to the current situation by electing uh, Democrats who might uh, raise taxes on the rich, or maybe they weren't more stimulus, for that. more infrastructure. You think that. You you wouldn't you think perhaps it's so hard to predict how people Americans are returning to their roots, which is a free market mm-hmm. belief in capitalism. So we put in these Republicans, and that sounds good for the stock market. Maybe that's what was part of what was driving the market recently. Well, but you've had a market that's gone up two hundred percent since March '09, and Obama's yeah, been president it's more that like whole 300%. time. Three hundred percent. So, so we went. It's from, from, I'm sorry, it tripled. Yeah, it tripled, 200%. but it's up to right. <laughs> so we the low in March '09 was six 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 on the S and P five hundred. We're just about two thousand. You know, yeah, not that yeah. spinning distance. That's that, a, that's that a worries triple. me. By the way, that worries me. Uh, it looks like it's something that there could be a turning point, but I just don't know. When. But here's the thing that everybody forgets: it's easy to start at the very low. Uh, in 2000, the S and P was at 1500. So here we are, 13, 14 years later, we're barely 33 percent higher than when we were where we were in 2000. Oh, and by the way, if you correct for inflation, that's I mean we're right back to where we were. Back we started. So no net net. So this is like 66 to 82. It looked like you were flat, but really you lost 60 or 70% of your yeah. portfolio because of inflation. because of inflation. So I'm going to change um, subjects on you again. And one of the things that I bet people don't know about you is that your good friends um, with a professor uh, who teaches at Pennsylvania, who yeah, goes Jeremy by the name Siegel, of Jeremy yeah. Siegel. Right. Yeah. So how did you two guys come to – and by the way – you two couldn't be. I've done shows with Jeremy years ago. Um, you two, personality-wise, couldn't be more different. <laughs> How did you two guys ever become oh, buds? Well, uh, we went to graduate school at MIT together. Together, I did not know that. And MIT, being very orderly, because you know they're in- engineers, they had us show up for chest X-rays, diagnostic. In alphabetical order. Oh, so Schiller Siegel, <laughs> you guys right. are right next and to we each had a other. Long, we were waiting in line. We had a long conversation. So he and I are actually very similar in some ways. I, mm-hmm. I learned a lot from him. Mm-hmm. But uh, we're uh, interested in the real world. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, economics programs are often populated by people who are interested in mathematics. And, well, and, we were both also. But I think we... we uh, we we had similar fascination with both, and that mm-hmm. that's what makes uh, for a good economist. I his, think his famous book, "Stocks for the Long Run," essentially right. just said, came out with a fifth edition of his. And now you have a third edition coming out of a rational right Zoo. coming out in February. So he's two editions ahead of you. <laughs> yes, that, well, that's not, although, I'll do it. I'll do it. It'll take me twenty years <laughs> now. But you've had a lot more. You've published a lot more books than he has. So right. 
when right. when you guys are on the bookshelves and he says I'm up to my fifth edition, yeah. you get to say, "But look how many books I've." Uh, <laughs> right. And I understand you. Your families are close. You guys. Yeah, we time. vacation together. Really? Like that that yeah. that's quite that's quite fascinating, yeah. and that goes back to grad school at um at MIT. That's uh, that's amazing. So we've been talking about everything from valuations and bubbles to uh, a rational um, behavior. What sort of changes would you like to see in investor behavior? If, if you can educate the investing public, what would you like to see them do differently than they're doing today? Well, that's an interesting question. First of all, I've said before, they should get an advisor. Mm -hmm. uh, secondly, I think that we need better investor education because people could know a lot more about. Thirdly, if we had better appreciation of finance, I think people could participate in products that would help them manage risks to their lives, like home equity insurance, insurance against losses in the value of your home, mm -hmm. or mortgages that protect you against home price declines. And someday, I think there will even be livelihood insurance that protect you against a drop in your uh, ability to earn an income. Really? Uh, these are things I talk about in my books. They're kind of futuristic uh, finance. Ha idea. Have you been tracking the or following the new set of uh, markets that allow you to invest in the future income of athletes? Have you been seeing Oh, that? I talk about that in my book, yeah. In Irrational Exuberance. In my book, New Financial Order. Okay. Yeah, the so-called Bowie bonds, where you could invest right. in David Bowie, his future um, income. That worked out to be really good for Bowie. I don't know how well that worked out for the, <laughs> I don't know what happened to David investor. Bowie. I don't. <laughs> well, it wasn't just that. It was that record sales eventually fell off a cliff, Yeah. and he sold his catalog, so he took the cash up front instead of well, the- Well, that's uh, good for David Bowie. Yes, it turns out he's a savvy You, see, you shouldn't person. hold Bowie bonds as the only thing in your portfolio. So if you held a diversified portfolio. A little a little Leonard Skinner, a little Led Zeppelin, <laughs> it, it, it all works and out. Go and go beyond just uh, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So so these ath there's a company out, I think, in California that's essentially doing the equivalent of IPOs where they take an athlete and they allow you to buy a percentage of his income yeah. And you don't know if he's going to get injured next year, what, what right. sort of endorsements. Right. Uh, that seems like a kind of interesting right. form of speculation. Um, uh, what sort of stuff along those lines? By the way, it, uh, Milton Friedman mm -hmm. advocated something like this in the 1960s in his book, Capitalism and Freedom. Mm -hmm. For everyone, we should he, all be able to sell shares in our income. Although then he kind of took it back. Milton Friedman had some sense of reality, and he said, this is not for now in America. So we we all can't have individual IPOs. That's not going to— Well, someday. But see, he was commenting in his book that they're kind of hard to enforce, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, enforce what? Trading yeah, people in individual could, uh, IPOs? could jump. Uh, they move away, and you can't find them anymore. Oh, so how are you going to capture a stream of their— That's what uh, he said, yeah. But if you're an athlete playing for a professional then team— you can find them. So uh, I always thought that was kind of a risky thing. Uh, you know, you an injury, you're done, you, you say something. Forget the craziness that happened with the NFL earlier this year. Uh, it's too, It seems very easy for an athlete to put his— you know, not everybody is LeBron James. Not everybody right. is a Michael Jordan who's going to have a 30-year stream of um, endorsement revenue. Or, look, you, you know, there are millions of golfers. There's only a handful of guys like Arnie Palmer and Jack Nicholas who, when their golf career was over, they went on to build businesses building golf courses. Uh, that That just seems like a challenging yeah. sort of IPO. So to bring that back to individuals, what else do you think they should do to to rein in the worst aspects of their behavior? Well, how should people control their psychological sure. impulses? <laughs> well, you need a therapist. Maybe you need some antidepressants. You know, we're medicating people more and more. Mm -hmm. I'm, Are we over-medicating people? Or? Probably. I, I, uh, so, so aside from antidepressants, 
most of our listeners are investors. What could they do to avoid the worst aspects of their own cognitive errors and behavioral yeah. foibles? Well, I think you have to be introspective and you have to understand psychology. And there are some important books that I recommend. For example, Daniel Kahneman wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow, mm -hmm. which is a summary of a lot of important uh, research in, in psychology, especially as relates to investing. It's a fascinating book. It, it's, it's a little thick, but it's definitely readable. He writes yeah, in a very yeah. uh, accessible style. What, what else, um, what sort of other books uh, have caught your eye? Well, you talk about emotions. Uh, Antonio Damasio mm -hmm. wrote a book called Descartes' Error, uh, referring to Rene Descartes, uh, was a philosopher hundreds mm -hmm. of years ago who advocated emphasizing your rational self. I think, therefore, avoid, I am. Yeah, he, was, he thought that you had two sides to your mind, your rational and your emotional, and that the important thing philosophically is to just clear out all of the emotion. But Damasio said, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. Your brain, there is no clear division in your brain. That you, The emotions are built in. Uh, so that's another interesting book. So, so when you say know yourself, be aware of your own, you really is really a way of saying, hey, be aware of your own propensity right. to allow your emotions to to get the best of you. So let's talk for a second about your own portfolio. Um, we we both had discussed passive investments and and long term indexes. Is there anything else you do besides that, or? Uh, do do you oh. walk the walk as well as uh, uh as well? Well, I I am not uh, my I have I'm working with Barclays Bank on some mm -hmm. investment products, but I I leave a lot of the management of that to them because mm -hmm. I I can't do everything and uh, I'm not I'm not watching individual stocks on a daily basis. So you're an index investor? Is that a fair statement? Not uh, well. I do sector indexes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do some individual stocks, but I don't. Uh, you, I have a very busy life. <laughs> I just don't have time to do. Uh, I write newspaper columns. I write mm -hmm. books. I travel. That's right. I left time. out. You're you're a columnist for the Sunday Business Section in the New York Times. Right. You're you're part of a group with. Let's see who else is in that. Tyler Cowen, Greg Mankiw. Right. Um, Richard Thaler. I'm trying to remember who else is in that rotation. Sandeel Melanathan. That's no. right. It, it, uh, and that's a murderer's row of, of writers there, to say the least. Yeah. So it's fair to say you're not actively uh, on a terminal trading every day. You're well, really a longer term. Uh, well, I don't actually need money either. <laughs> I think I'm all set for retirement. So you're okay. <laughs> and you're still working. You, any plans well, to retire? Time. No, I have no plans to retire. Full-time faculty member. Yeah. And that's for as far for the next 50 years. I have to years. spend time with my students, too. I try to. I, I have too many of them to do as good as I should. So I could keep you here for another hour, but I know you have an appointment um, up after this uh, honoring a... a a colleague of yours from Columbia University mm -hmm. uh, at the New York Times. So I want to thank you for how much time you spent with us. I really appreciate it. We've been speaking with Yale professor Robert Schiller. Um, be sure and check out our previous podcasts that are on iTunes and Bloomberg.com. You're listening to Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.